I, I honestly tried to keep it pretty light at the final table too. I was joking around and like throwing in chips casually and stuff like that. And I think like, and playing very fast. And I think that that did throw some people off because they were like, why is he, why is he this casual? And like, I think I was trying to sort of portray the sense of confidence and like, Oh, this is just another, this is just another cash game for me, which in, in a lot of ways, like I said, at the table, it really did feel like, but I think there's also a benefit to giving off that, um, that feeling of comfort to the other people at the table. Because they're like, well, why is he so comfortable, you know? Hi, it's Runchix. The following is my conversation with Alex Livingston. He finished third in the WSOP main event in 2019. He's been playing poker professionally for over a decade and his journey is full of fun stories to which many poker players can relate. There are some ridiculous Dijon stories like how he lost $40,000 playing beer pong at a time when he had less than $40,000 to his name. Yep, he lost more than he had and yep, in beer pong. Another one is about how he went to Amsterdam for a week with a couple friends and ended up quitting his stay and staying in Amsterdam for three months. Well, you get the idea. And of course, we talk about the experience of playing at the final table of the main event. And there's a lot more about life as a poker player, advice, fun facts, and random stories about Vegas casinos around the world, and much more. Check out the description for timestamps if you want to jump around the topics. And now, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Alex Livingston. So, Alex... Um, so glad to have you on. Thank you for making the time. Um, we've met, we've played together in Vegas before, and now right. we get a chance to properly have a long conversation about all sorts of poker-related things. So really yeah, excited about it. This is great. Awesome. So I guess let's start at the natural point. Maybe let's talk a bit about you, about your, your background. For those of you who don't know you, uh, maybe a little intro from yourself. Sure. So yeah, I'm, I'm Alex Livingston. I was uh, born in Toronto uh, in 1987. Grew up in Halifax, which is a small, smallish city on the east coast of Canada. Um, and from an early age, I was always interested in uh, strategy games, uh, chess primarily. I learned at I think the age of four or five. Started playing in a lot of chess tournaments. Um, eventually, representing Nova Scotia in some national chess tournaments. And then every summer with my family, we would play bridge as well, mm. um, which is kind of a dead game now. You don't really see a lot of people playing bridge. Uh, it's more like my parents' generation that played it. But myself, my two cousins, my mom, my aunt and uncle, we'd all play bridge uh, every summer. So I'd play like two or three hours of that every day for three months. Uh, so I guess that background in chess and bridge ended up sort of naturally gearing me towards poker. And once I realized that you can make a little bit of money in poker, um, I sort of lost some of the interest in chess, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I went to, I went to university for uh, three years in Boston, ended up dropping out. Um, we can talk a little bit more about that later, but I ended up uh, spontaneously flying to Europe before my last year of college and not coming back. Uh, so I was in Amsterdam for three months and that was sort of the, I guess the official point where I became truly a professional poker player. And, uh, that was 2009 and I guess never really looked back since, since then I've been basically just playing cards. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds, sounds interesting. I really want to dig into several directions there because first of all, I want to say, I can totally relate to your 
sort of childhood story of playing chess and bridge. In fact, that's that's yeah. what I did. And also like learn chess around, you know, four year mark or something. I was really passionate right. about the game, still am, um, but obviously not at the same level as poker. Right. Um, so what did you study at Boston University? So yeah, I was at a school called Tufts and um, I was originally majoring in economics. And I switched my major to sociology, but it was one of those schools where you have, you know, like eight or 10 different requirements, maybe more than that. It was a liberal arts school. So they were all about the balanced education. Mm -hmm. And I didn't love economics when I was majoring in that. So I ended up sort of like, you know, filling out a lot of those other requirements, uh, whether it was like art or language. So I had pretty, pretty much a pretty balanced education there. And I, I didn't take too many classes that were just geared towards one major or another. And then I was also doing this minor in entrepreneurial leadership, which was really cool. And I really enjoyed that. What actually had happened was that I originally sort of wanted to go to uh, business school for undergrad. And my mom kind of talked me out of it, which I don't think she was wrong to do. But she, she said, you know, you can always go to business school later. You should just start by getting a, like a more broad background. So I ended up uh, kind of taking a little bit of everything. All right. And then you just flew to Europe. How the hell yeah. did that happen? So should we get right into that story? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty, really that's curious. Pretty that's pretty that's cool. not a common story. I mean, people drop out of uni all the time, yeah. but not just uh, disappear to Europe all of a sudden. Yeah, no, this is definitely like, uh, like the I'd say the turning point in my life. So, so prior to this, I had already dropped out of school once, but then I'd gone back. And uh, in the summer between my third and fourth year of college. So I had one more year to do. And I, again, because I'd, I'd taken all these other requirements, my last year was going to be very major focus. I was going to, so, which was now sociology. So it was gonna be a lot of sociology classes, but I had, um, that summer I ended up meeting this guy on a cruise ship and actually the only cruise I've ever been on. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we were playing blackjack on the casino on board. Mm -hmm. And he sort of could tell I was, you know, I was playing three or four spots and I was quickly doubling. Like I knew how to double split. I mean, I, anyone who's played blackjack, you know, for more than a few hours knows the basic strategy, but this guy seemed to be impressed by the fact that I knew what to do so quickly, you know, in all these decisions. And he said, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm still in school, but I've been making some money playing poker. Cause at this point I, I'd, I'd already been a profitable poker player for a couple of years. And he said, well, how would you like to be a day trader? I said, well, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. And he gave, we exchanged numbers and he ended up setting up an internship for me with a small day trading firm in New York later that summer. And this was a kind of a one-off thing. They, they hadn't really done this before. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty cool. And I, I went there, I think it was just for two weeks. And I was just doing a lot of basic like number crunching and Excel stuff, but I got to see the environment that they were working in. And at the end of it, he sat me down with the head of the company and they said, listen, Alex, you know, we like you. We think you've got a lot of promise and you could, you could work for us, but you have to do three things. And the first one was go back and finish your degree, which I was planning on doing anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, second one was get better grades because poker had already been slipping into my school and, I, and my grades were not great. And then the third one, he said, quit poker because he knew I was a big poker player. And he thought that that would be a huge distraction. If I moved to New York to be a trader, I can't also try to be a poker player. And this was before uh, Black Friday. So online poker was still a big thing in the States. Um, so that was sort of my 
rough plan. Uh, and then a, about a week before, before school was about to begin, uh, one of my best friends, Dan, and I were at Foxwoods and I just, you know, I'm a pretty, pretty impulsive person sometimes. And I said, well, we should, we should go somewhere. You know, we should like just go on like a random little trip. And I suggested Chicago and he's like, Oh no, that's too far. That's too much work. But then for whatever reason, like I suggested Europe and he's like, okay, now that sounds pretty cool. So the original plan, like I originally was thinking like I have about eight days and then I'm only going to miss a couple days of school this way. Cause school was just about to begin. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was fine with missing the first like few days. Cause you just get like your syllabus and you know, it's, I mean, already like I'm going down a dangerous little path here, but I was like, all right, we got, we, we can, I've got eight days. I can, I can devote to this. And then I'm going to come back to Boston and I will have missed maybe two or three days of school. Um, and let's see. So our original plan, we were going to try and cover like 10 countries in eight days. And that's just stupid. Uh, so we, so we, we revised that. Uh, we flew into Rome. We spent two nights in Rome. And on the second day in Rome, we decided it would be really fun. We had this other friend, Ryan, in Canada. And we said, let's fly Ryan here. And let's not give him a choice. So we booked him a flight. We, I sent him a message on Facebook or something that just said, travel light. And then I forwarded him an email of his itinerary because he had nothing to do. He didn't have a job. He was a poker player. Like, and, and then he, and basically his flight was taking off 24 hours after I sent that email. Right. And if you know, Ryan today, he is not the sort of person who would just randomly go to Europe on a whim one day before, because his friends told him to, but you know, we paid for the flight, whatever. And he showed up. And so we, we did two days in Rome, two days in Southern Italy. Then we picked Ryan up in Paris at the airport, mm-hmm. two nights in Paris, and then two nights in Amsterdam. And then the flight plan was to fly back. So he was only going to have four days in Europe. Um, second night in Amsterdam, we go out to a club and it's, it's this place called supper club. And I didn't really know what it was when we booked it. It, it was supposed to be this like dinner and show experience. And it ended up being a drag show, which was kind of funny. It wasn't what we were expecting, but it was, it was entertaining. And there were, uh, it was like you, you ate at these tables and some of the tables were on like these beds. And then there were like massage people coming around and there, were, there was like a lot of dancing. And it was very interesting visual experience uh so we did that we got quite drunk at that uh at that dinner and probably were smoking some weed and and then by the end of that um go back to the hotel and i've got a flight back to boston at 9 30 that morning the next morning and we're i don't know what time we got back to the hotel like 3 a.m 3 30 right obviously i sleep through my flight uh and then i i'm like freaking out in the hotel room i'm like what am I going to do guys? Like I'm already like, I've already missed a couple days of school. Like I don't want to have to pay whatever it costs to buy another ticket right now. And, and they're like, well, you know, you can do whatever you need to do, but we talked about it last night and we're going to stay in Amsterdam for a lot longer. (laughs) So I had this like basically hour long internal struggle where I, I was just, obviously that sounded great, but I knew that, you know, I'd be letting some people down if I didn't go back to school. Um, and I just ended up deciding to stay there and we stayed in Amsterdam for three months and we had to, it was funny cause we had to pay all the rent up front in cash. Cause who's going to rent to a bunch of random poker players from out of the continent. And we were a little bit short. So we had to like go grind for the first couple of days to make the cash to pay the rent. And then, you know what I mean? So it was, 
it was quite the quite the experience but that was definitely the turning point for me mm. wow i didn't yeah. expect that <laughs> when you, when you said i just went for to europe for nine nine months or three months or whatever uh yeah i really didn't expect the story to start off at, at such a point um yeah. How did you feel? You said you had this one hour struggle. What was going through your mind? Like, did you feel at some level that basically staying in Europe means you're giving up on the day trading job? You're quitting school? Did that so, register already? I think it was mostly, so my dad died when I was young, but I, I'm really close with his sister, my aunt and my uncle, and then as well as my mom. And I think that those three people were probably the people in my mind, I was like, okay, I know I'm letting these three people down. If I, uh, if I don't go back to school and I was probably like, if it weren't for them and the fact that I'd like, you know, you know, we, we put a lot of money into, into the three years that I'd been there and it's like kind of crazy to not finish. And of course, you know, just because I didn't go back then didn't mean I couldn't eventually finish, but it sort of felt like this was a, this was a big decision. I knew I was letting some people down. Um, I, the day trading part, I guess maybe it crossed my mind, but it wasn't, I wasn't like super set on doing that after I graduated anyway. I, mm -hmm. I, I liked it. It was cool. I liked that I had that option. And I also didn't necessarily think that this would completely close that door because again, I could maybe go back and get the degree eventually, or I could maybe find some other way to, to get a job like that. But, mm -hmm. but then, then, you know, in terms of the pros, like I loved Amsterdam, I loved Europe and I'd been to Europe before, but this was my first time really experiencing it as I guess an adult and being able to party and um, Amsterdam is just such a cool city. So mm -hmm. I, I really liked the vibe there and, you know, I liked the, the guys I was with and it just felt like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. What were the key takeaways for you from that experience? Well, if I could do it over again, I would have definitely spent more time actually getting to know the city. We spent a lot of time in the poker room there. Mm -hmm. And we, we rented an apartment that was just about a eight minute walk, 10 minute walk to the poker room. So the funny thing is I've gone back to Amsterdam since then and realized that there's a faster way to get from our apartment to the casino than the route we were taking every day. It's like slightly faster, but it kind of cuts through a field and it's like slightly nicer walk. And I never figured that out the whole time I was there. Um, and we ate at like the same couple of places for lunch that were close to the casino. So if I could do it over, I would definitely, uh, spend a little more time actually getting to know the city. But in terms of the key takeaways, I, I did really well playing uh, live poker there. And I didn't do as well playing online. And I was playing online with a bad internet connection and bad habits and staying up late. And, and that's something that's been a problem for me in my whole poker career is having bad habits with online mm -hmm. and, and being a more, much more consistent winner playing live than online. They're very different games. People, I mean, right. of course, live is easier and, and, there's more of a carryover with someone who can beat online can beat live than someone who can beat live being able to beat online. But at the same time, they are very different games. And, you know, my skill set is much more geared towards live poker. So I think I really grew a lot as a live poker player there and didn't grow at all as an online player because I was just playing with bad habits on bad internet. Mm. What are some of the key qualities you think which you developed that help you with the life, live poker um, business? Um, Okay, so it's an interesting question. 
I think maybe partly because there was, okay, people did mostly speak English, but mm -hmm. there were certain players that would only speak in Dutch at the table um, or primarily speak in Dutch. And so that's just one less variable that you know, I don't understand Dutch. So I can't understand what they're saying, but I still need to learn about so the way I've always approached life poker. And this is just like, this is just the way my brain thinks, I think is that I try to figure out who somebody is first and then figure out how they're going to play cards based off of that. Mm -hmm. So when you, when they're not speaking English, you have to rely on other things. So I think I just developed those, that intuition or kind of like honed in on those, on the, on the way to figure out who somebody is, if you're not getting the verbal clues of like what they're saying, but even, even you can pick up like the tone of voice they're using or like, you know, like, the way they speak is going to tell you something about who they are. And then that's going to tell you something about who they are as a player. And I, I really believe that that's a big thing with live poker is understanding the people you're playing against helps you understand the style they're going to play. And of course you have to understand the game itself of poker or else you're never going to be able to make those connections. But I think about it from that perspective first, that's like the first way my brain processes the information is who is this guy or, or woman. <clears throat> Not there were not a lot of women in the games in Amsterdam. I can't, I'm, I'm not sure if there, I'm not sure if I played a single session with a woman in Amsterdam, which is kind of funny to think about. I mean, it's very very male dominated here too, but it, I think it was yeah. even more so there at that time. Yeah, especially back at that time, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah, you do see definitely a change, and it depends where you are, like regionally. Like I think mm. LA probably is one of the places I played with the most women. Um, but yeah, that time in Amsterdam extremely male dominated in terms of the players. Also, there was a PLO game there. And the funny thing is I never even tried it. And it's, it's funny because now it's my best game, but I, uh, yeah, I think it was very juicy too. Oh yeah. It was a bigger game. I think we were playing two, five, no limit Euro. And there was a five, 10 PLO game, like four days a week. And just thinking if I knew what I knew now, <laughs> I was playing that game. That would be pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. That game is still there. I mean, I don't know if it's still there now because it's hard to say what's what's going on with COVID. Everything's closed down. Yeah, but, I've been uh, back to Amsterdam just for Master Classics a couple of times and, mm -hmm. and games are hit or miss. When they're good, they're really good. I love that casino though. It's probably top three casino for me worldwide. Mm. Really, really like it. Yeah. What some of the other two are? Like, well, what okay, would be your top three? Because you've yeah, traveled a well, lot, obviously. Okay, so are we talking... Poker room or casino? The full casino, I guess. Uh, uh, okay, let's go with full casino. The whole experience, I guess. Why not? Yeah. Okay, so it's really tough because the Vegas casinos do offer so much in terms of all the amenities that some somewhere like Amsterdam doesn't have. Mm -hmm. So, okay, maybe I'll say like I'm rating it based on casino, but as a poker player. So you're going there to like play poker, eat, yeah. like maybe play some roulette. So I'd say the win... Uh, Amsterdam and then Crown Melbourne. But the, there's a couple other ones that I really like, the Vic and the Aria. So the Vic is in London. Um, those would be my top five. I guess it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to pick favorites and some of them are better for different things. I, it's really hard to beat the win in terms of like the overall casino experience. Win Encore. Yeah. Win, win is definitely up there. It's really nice. I mean, I've played a lot more at the Aria and the Aria is great too, but it's, 
you know, the wind, that, that room is just a little bit nicer. It's a little bit more tucked away. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, because like, at, at least in wind, they have a sort of fake high stakes area, a bit, yeah. a bit limited, right? Whereas in Aria, well, okay, they have that, that place up there. So they yeah, run I guess it, it's, it's fine. They, like they'll, they'll put, sometimes they'll just put the bigger games on the floor and they'll put like smaller games or like that little tournament up in the, in the upstairs yeah. area. Yeah, that's the thing. They would put the tournament there, and then you're you're forced to play. It's just yeah, Aria just feels a little bit more kind of like crowded, and the tables are a little bit closer together. But I love the Aria. I mean, it, it, like if there's anything in Vegas that's my home casino, it's the Aria. That's where I've I've played the most hours by far. But yeah, it's pretty hard to beat the win, and it's, and yeah. it's pretty hard to beat Casino Amsterdam right in the middle of the city and mm. nice tall ceilings and yeah, it's just a, yeah. just a cool casino right along the canal. Mm. And of course, the 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 other ones that you mentioned, the Vic and uh, Crown Melbourne. I mean, just yeah. the location of those as well. It's just you know, even if you just want to step out, and uh, you're in the middle of. Oh, and Rosvedov too cool is Rosvedov is is the, is this so Rosvedov is a highly that's a that's a polarized opinion that a lot of yeah. people really don't like Rosvedov. It, it but it's this it's a pretty magical place because it's this like world-class casino in terms of the way it's run and in terms of like their understanding of poker and, and all that. And it's just in the absolute middle of nowhere. And let me just like, this is kind of a little sidebar, but like one little note about Rosvedov is I had some money that was on deposit there and I had just left it there last time I was at uh, world series of poker Europe. Cause I figured I'd be coming back this year. And of course, mm-hmm. COVID I didn't come back. So I, I emailed them. Or actually, I sent a Facebook message to uh, like the big supervisor there, and he said he'd forward it to the the team. They emailed me back within like twenty minutes, and then I had the money in my bank account the next day. I mean, that is just that is like unprecedented customer service from a major casino, and you'd never get that with any of the major like American casinos. First of all, you probably wouldn't be able to just like email the request. You'd probably have to fill out some paperwork and fax it to them, or maybe even be there in person, right? Mm-hmm. So. I, Customer service wise, I mean, Rosvedov is pretty pretty hard to beat, honestly. Mm. Yeah, but then again, uh, it's in the middle of nowhere, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's in the middle of nowhere, and there's like some other, you know, knocks against them. But uh, mm. I've spent a lot of time there. Yeah, it's really interesting what you mentioned about the language barrier and how it forced you to look for other ways to understand the other or get to know the other players and how they play and what's their style etc etc and uh i can totally relate to that and i i think there's some truth to it yeah i mean of course you're always gonna learn the most from showdowns and like the cards you see them playing and all that but but yeah you, you get you just start to pick up on people's energy better when there's no language you know you just sort of like pick up on their body language pick up on their mm. ego or whatever you know yeah, interesting. Interesting. But um, how did your family look at that? Like, what was that conversation like when you told them, guys, listen, I'm, I'm staying here in Amsterdam for a while? What was the reaction? Well, I don't think they were super supportive of the decision right away. Or, you know, they thought, okay, well, maybe you just need a little bit of time off, but like you should go back and get your degree eventually, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, you know, it's cool that you can make money doing this, but like you need to have something to fall back on in case it doesn't work out, which is, 
very fair advice. And you know what, if I had a kid uh, and I hadn't grown up as a poker player, or maybe even that now that I have, you know, maybe I would be thinking or saying some of the same things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I get, I get it. Um, but they were not like, they didn't shun me or anything. Like they still love me. We we still happy to see each other. And it wasn't like, I couldn't talk about poker around them. They were, they were definitely open to hearing about it, but there was definitely some, I guess, like just normal concern. Now you think like, so you spent more than a decade playing poker professionally. Yeah. How do you feel about like a conventional path, you know, get the education, get a stable job, all of that. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because you obviously went um, quite the opposite way. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's just not for everybody. I think for some people, it's definitely the best thing to do is just go conventional. Uh, just wasn't for me. And I think that that is the big takeaway is like, um, you know, the education system sort of in a lot of ways tries to treat all kids like the same thing is right for all of them where it's, and and I wish that's why I always think there should be more like a more diverse, uh, I guess, variety of options starting as young as middle school, in terms of like, okay, let's, let's teach you some skill, like trade skills, how to change a tire, woodworking, stuff like that, or like at least make these things options or like even like how to do your taxes, financial accountability, like just, there, I think there needs to be a broader, uh, you know, available spectrum of classes than just like math, English, history, geography, science, whatever it is. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'm not, this is not like some, something I've thought a ton about just, mm. I just don't think that everyone should is geared towards taking the same path. What were your first steps in poker? How did uh, you actually get into the game? So I ended up going to a boarding school. It was the same boarding school my dad had gone to. And so I ended up going there for the last two years of high school. I, you know, I had, I had played some poker before that, even like just in middle school in Halifax uh, and, and like, but not a ton, just a little bit. But then at that boarding school, I, I saw that was when uh, Ivy was on TV getting knocked out, bubbling the final table and Moneymaker ended up winning, mm-hmm. uh, which was obviously like the sort of the start of the poker boom. And so I saw that, I was watching that, really interested in that, and then ended up playing some poker at the boarding school with friends. And I actually ended up getting in trouble for it. And I was gambling on ping pong too. I, I've, I've actually gambled from a pretty young age. I was like, I was um, betting like with friends on the Super Bowl and stuff when mm-hmm. I was 10 or 11. Um, but just obviously small money. Uh, yeah. And I ended up getting warned by my the head of my dormitory at boarding school that if he caught me with a deck of cards in my hands, I'd be expelled because he had just like seen me playing poker that many times. So, uh, so I guess that's where I started playing. And then when I turned 18, I, I threw some money on, pokerroom.com was the first site I was on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was a losing online player for a long time. And then it became a winner for a while and then actually became a loser again for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like that's, but I've always preferred live poker. And what did you realize? Like, you know what? I can actually make a living doing this. I think it was the summer between, let's see. I was 19. So yeah, it was the summer between first and second year of university. And 
instead of getting a summer job, I just ended up going to the casino here in Halifax that whole summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I made $5,000 over the summer, which was a lot of money for me at the time. And that's like, that's playing like one, two, no limit and two, four to five, 10 limit. So that was like pretty decent sample size of consistent winning. And I was like, well, I, I, I'm pretty sure I can make money doing this. Like mm-hmm. this is, you know, I, I knew enough about sample size and, and that kind of thing to realize that it wasn't a guarantee, but that I was on the right path. Um, and I had, I think I had a lot of confidence in my abilities playing live pretty much from the get go just always felt very comfortable to me. And again, I think that you have to attribute a lot of that to the hours and hours of bridge and chess I played as a kid. Just Mm -hmm. always like, I'm used to just competing at games in person, card games, board games. Mm -hmm. And I guess that feeling that you can make money playing poker and playing poker is something that is available for you anywhere and everywhere, basically. Yeah. That allowed you to make these somewhat tough decisions because, you know, a lot of people have the fear of making a super wrong choice, a very bad turn in their life by, like, you know, quitting the school or or going to Europe. And you always had this, uh, your job, if you chose to, it's sort of following you because you're like, well, I'm going to be fine. I, I can find, I can play poker. So it enabled yeah. you to make these decisions in many ways, right? Yeah. And you, you know, who knows when you're younger, you probably have more irrational confidence, uh, and less fear. Um, and not to say that I, I mean, obviously I'm not scared now that I won't be able to make a living playing poker for a long time, but did I deserve to have that same confidence then who knows? Mm -hmm. Because I was a lot more unproven, but again, probably because I was younger, um, yeah, I just, you know, you're, you're less scared to go broke when you're younger. Uh, and you just, I think you just believe in yourself more, honestly. You're less like, uh, I don't know. At least I did. Maybe it's different. Maybe for some people, they believe in themselves because like more and more through the years because they get this like meaningful sample size of data to back them up. But for me, like I just had a lot of confidence as a young poker player. It's not only about belief, it's about taking responsibility as well in some ways. Because, you know, for for some people to just say, fuck it, I'm going to Europe, I'm staying here, I'm not going back to school. It's because you're going against your parents, you're going against the, the convention, you're going against the easy path, right? Because the path of least resistance would be just go back to school, finish the thing then whatever take your they trade their job and just keep keep going forward like whatever the wind blows you right yeah although this felt easier for me mm-hmm. <laughs> so even yeah. though like i had to deal with the blowback from my aunt and uncle and my mom but it yeah. just it felt like yeah i don't know i just i figured i could do it yeah and i guess there there was something you mentioned about you know the, those 3 months you were basically living as an adult so it was you know, just taking responsibility for your life, actually doing something that you want to do. So making a decision of that's what I'm doing as opposed to, you know, just because like, how do we make decisions which university to go or whatever? Somebody suggests and then you're like, well, okay, doesn't sound too bad. I'll, I'll go for it. Right. Yeah. That's about it. 
for most of us anyway. I mean, there there are some yeah. people who who clearly at a very young age already know they're going to be a physicist or whatever. Yeah, happens right. to be, and you know, interesting. So what happened then? So you spent some time in Europe. Um, what so was... just three three months in Amsterdam. Yeah. Okay. And then I came back. I ended up. Uh, so that was that was fall two thousand nine. Then two thousand ten. I I believe I bounced around a lot. I went to Aussie Millions that January. And then I. Actually, one cool thing that happened to me in Amsterdam was I, I at the poker table, I met this guy who was a pilot for Delta. Okay. And I just sort of offhand, I just went for it. I said, you know, because he, he told me he wanted to get better poker and all this. I said, why, why don't I trade you poker lessons for free flights? <laughs> and he ended up being able to, so then we, did, we he's a friend of mine now, and, we, and he ended up hooking me up with these business class standby upgrades or, you know, for, I have to pay the taxes, but. I didn't have to pay for the actual cost of the flights. And I'd be, as long as it was available, I'd be able to fly business class. And I had that gig for a while. They, they stopped allowing business class for the buddy passes. But uh, so I ended up like flying back from Amsterdam to, to Boston and then to LA and to Sydney, Australia, back to LA. All of, the, all of those legs, I think, was a uh, like thousand bucks total. And it was business class on like, like LA to Sydney, for instance, which was pretty incredible. Um, yeah. So, wow. <laughs> so, so I did Aussie millions start of 2010 and yeah, and I was coaching him poker a little bit too, but then his wife didn't want to play as much poker. So it ended up being, it was a good deal for me, but I've, you know, I, I take him out to dinner anytime I see him. He's a super cool guy. He lives in Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, did Aussie millions. And then I, I think I spent a lot of 2010, the first part of the year in California, my friend Dan's place in LA and then, uh, back, back in Halifax for a bit kind of bounced around, did a lot of traveling for the next three or four years, was sort of based in Halifax and Toronto. Mm-hmm. And then around 2014, I ended up moving to Vegas and was based there up until COVID, although I was still spending a ton of time in Halifax. Mm-hmm. Wow. Quite quite a journey, quite a story. Yeah. What year was it? The, was it 2019 when you had your massive score in WSOP? Uh, yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. Cause I know you predominantly as a cash game player, you love to play cash games. That's, that's your main game. And all of a sudden you end up, uh, scoring huge in the biggest event, uh, in the yeah. world. How, how was well, that? How was that experience? First of all, like how, how was that journey? It was amazing. Uh, I love the world series of poker, so I don't play a ton of tournaments generally, but like during the world series, I'll play typically between eight and 15 uh, World Series events, and then maybe a couple other ones at the Win or the Aria or where, wherever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've played the main. That was my ninth time playing the main. Um, yeah, it was it was an incredible journey. Um, I don't know where to begin. Like, because every day could almost be like its own story. But uh, mm-hmm. there was a huge turning point on day seven where there were twenty one people left. And I got all in pre-flop in kind of a thin spot with ace, 10 of clubs and ended up being up against ace, king and tens. So I'm just basically dead, right? Mm-hmm. Three ways. And somehow uh, ran out uh, straight on the river. It was, the flop was amazing. It was like queen, jack, eight, two clubs. So double gut shot and nut flush draw. 
And yeah, rivered off Sue King. So that was like the big turning point. And yeah, I mean, the experience was crazy with the cameras and the, the commotion. It's all, it's all like a bit of a blur, but it was awesome. I was able to get, you know, I had friends flying in from Halifax and people driving up from LA and had a big rail and mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. How was the experience of the final table? Like what's going on through your mind? Do you manage to stay focused on the game, on the hands or the pressure of the cameras that the friends, the support is that registering at some level? So what I've said to people about that whole experience and especially the final table was that when I'm actually at the table playing cards, I was more focused than I've ever been at probably at any point in my life playing poker and nothing else. I didn't care. Like I was pretty much able to tune out everything else. Um, but it's, it's between it's on the breaks, even the 20 minute breaks during the day mm-hmm. or the, the big breaks between days. That's where I was sort of shaky, I guess, like a lot of anxiety and a lot of trying to push everything else out and, and stay focused on what I need to focus on. But I've always wanted to compete on a level like that. So the actual competition, the actual playing cards. And I'm not really a no limit player anymore, but like, it didn't feel like I was playing no limit or it didn't feel like I was playing a tournament. It just felt like I was playing live poker, which mm-hmm. is what we're at, you know? So does it like, I think my, my, if people ask me, am I a good no limit holding player? I would say, no, I don't think I'm a great no limit holding player, but I'm a good live poker player. And when it comes to the world series poker main event, I think like being good at live poker is more important than being good at no limit hold'em. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, it absolutely just absolutely does, yeah. Reading, the reading people and like the, the feeling, the energies and like the situational awareness and that kind of stuff that just like comes from the experience of playing many, many hours of live poker. Mm. Figuring out when people are shifting gears and like who's tilting and like all that stuff, like that's that's what I'm good at. So I kind of like feel like I kind of relearned Nolan Holdem as I went along. If that makes sense. Not, not that I've completely forgotten how to play, but just like the game has evolved so much from when I used to play it regularly. Like since maybe 2015, 2014, I've basically just been a PLO player and I'll play the main event every year and I'll play maximum like 50 hours of no limit cash throughout the year. So like, you know, yeah, like a week's worth of sessions, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and almost predominant, almost all PLO. So in terms of like the detailed theory of no limit, I'm definitely behind but also like the, the people that play the main event you get it's a wide wide range of player types it's a lot of amateurs a lot of weaker pros a lot of people from different poker backgrounds so that that definitely will feed more into my style than if i were just playing against like really good no limit specialists mm-hmm. yeah of course like the the main event is a different animal it's very different yeah. to say the high roller events yeah or even different to like a I don't know, like 5K6 max or something like that. Yeah. It would be like a tough time. Hmm. I wonder, because you said basically when you're playing, you're super focused, maybe more focused than you've ever been. But then in the breaks, you have the anxiety, you have, you're fighting your little demons. How do you manage to sit down and get back in the zone? Yeah, it's hard to explain. It just kind of happened. Like, so... I don't know. The break would be coming to an end. I'd sit in my chair and then I'm still feeling nervous. I'm like waiting for the cards to get dealt. But like the moment that I am actually like picking down, picking up a hand and like looking at eight, five of clubs or whatever I have, like it just, it just sort of switched gears. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, 
I imagine it's similar to how an athlete would feel like maybe you're in the NBA finals or something like that. I would imagine there's some pregame anxiety. I would imagine there's some anxiety during halftime. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Cause maybe at halftime they're already like, or maybe the whole time they're just so boosted up on adrenaline. They're like, you know, they don't have that anxiety. And these are people who've been doing this long time and putting themselves in these situations. But I imagine that when, when they're on the court, like there, there's no anxiety. They're just playing. They're just acting off of instinct. And even though poker's not an athletic sport, I think there's still some of that. Like once I have a card in my hand or like I'm watching a pot between other players, like it's, you're just acting off instinct and you don't mm-hmm. have to think about it. As much. And, and then in between the breaks, you know, someone's coming up to me and wanting to do an interview or like I've got all my friends trying to talk to me or whatever it was, or I'm, I need to think about my, am I hungry? Am I, do I need caffeine? Do I need like a beer to calm the nerves? And I sort of had like a, a basic system that I've followed most of the tournament, which was, I would drink a lot of green shakes because sometimes as it gets deeper, especially I struggle to eat as well because of the anxiety. So a lot of green mm-hmm. shakes to get my nutrients. I would try to do a breakfast too, like a good solid food breakfast, eat as much solid food as I could. But if I couldn't eat solid food, it was green shakes. And then when I could feel my energy getting a little low, like towards the middle to the end of each day, I would usually drink a Red Bull. And then usually like the last hour, especially on the earlier days would be like beer level. I'd have one or two beers and that sort of calms the nerves. So it's funny, like just like thinking about all the different things I'm putting in my body and they're all, they all sort of have a purpose. Maybe, maybe there are some bad side effects to each of them. Like I, I know Red Bull is not the best thing for you, but I know that it was helpful in those moments where I needed it. Hmm. Yeah, I want to explore all of that a bit more because, you know, that final table experience brings us out a different side of poker, a side that cash game players are not really used to it, right? Because in cash game, like, what is the the pressure? There's no pressure, really, unless you're putting pressure on yourself or unless you're playing above your limit uh, and just getting anxious about that. Like, normally... It's all relaxed. It's all fine. It's all smiles and no no problem, right? So this is a very different environment, which is much more like an actual sport. Because as you said, you know all all the pressures that you have to deal with, all the anxieties, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, calm calm yourself, focus yourself. That's a skill in itself. But before we dig into that a bit more, let's just talk a bit about live poker. Right, because as you said, the games are very different. And I, I play. I used to play about half and half in terms of online and, and live. Nowadays, yeah. obviously, it's it's mostly online, yeah. or well, nowadays really just online. <laughs> but um, what do you think? Like, how how's your decision making process in the game, or or in general? Because like, the biggest difference that stands out for me in uh, in live and online is live that's basic you have to treat it as a long run right it's a eight hour session 10 hour session you have to manage your levels of energy you have to take care of what you eat how you sleep how you prepare for the next day because you know it's it's too easy and i see a lot of people make this mistake uh, transitioning from online to live it's too easy to burn out super early like you 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 come to vegas three days later you just like you need a holiday a vacation because you're burned out right I think that's true. I think so. I, I was like, until COVID, I was, I was sort of spending seven months of the year in Vegas and then another four to five in Halifax. And, 
it was funny because people would ask like, Oh, Vegas must be awesome. All the clubs, all the partying. I didn't really party in Vegas. I was there to work. So I, I had a, a pretty good you know, routine of trying to make sure I was eating healthy, working out. Cause like you say, it is easy to burn out. Um, and you, and, and like live cash game sessions can be long. And sometimes if the game is good, you don't want to leave. And you, you know, mm-hmm. back in the, when, my younger days, I would just play forever. And then I, I realized, well, you know, playing until 7am and then resetting your sleep schedule. Like there's a trade off to that in terms of like how it impacts your ability to play future sessions, even if it's plus EV in that session. And I'm, there are still times I'll play until seven in the morning because the game just requires it, but I've probably gotten better at quitting games because I know what it's going to do to me the next day and so on. And also when you're younger, you can just bounce back quicker. Mm. Um, But yeah, that's, I guess the endurance aspect is a, a big part of live poker and it was certainly a big part of the main event. Yeah. And I, I think the main event, it's crazy the hours they put you through because like if you're an older guy or something, I mean, in some of the days they dragged out, I think it was days five and six. There was all sorts of weird things happening where like, or four, five and six dinner was at a different time every day because of the, the TV people. Like normally it's supposed to be a dinner break supposed to be around 6.45 every day and you can mm. get used to that. But we had like one day it was 4 p.m. and then the next day it was 8.30 p.m. And that's that's a, that's a lot for these, like especially the older people. And then they were squeezing in an extra half level. So we would play, we'd start at noon and on a couple of the days, I don't think we were done until about 2 a.m. So that's a 14 hour day. I mean, that's, that's no joke. Mm. Obviously it's, it's worth it. You're playing for a lot of money and it's the best tournament of the year, but it's uh, there is a major endurance aspect to the tournament for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And not only, not only pure endurance aspect, there is also, that's where the experience comes in because when you're used to these long sessions and you know, what's coming, you know that, Hey, if I, if I don't take care of the other things, if I don't care what I eat and uh, when I go to sleep and what I actually do, things are going to be real tough tomorrow. Yeah. I wonder how do you manage your attention during the session, right? Let's say you're, you're playing a 12 hour session. Are you one of those people who manages to stay focused and pay attention pretty much most of the time, or are you trying Uh, to pace yourself and switch off as much as you can to just kind of maintain the, the energy? It's a good question. Um, if it's a cash game, my big thing is I try to make the game as fun as possible. So I will sacrifice a little bit of short-term EV because A, I think it's going to keep me more engaged. And B, I think in a lot of cases, it's going to actually pay dividends in the game itself in the long term. So I'll do all sorts of things. I'll try to get fun little side games going. Um, I'll three bet people with like in PLO with like ridiculous double suited hands just to get, hopefully get them down to showdown and like, have them be like, wow, what's this guy doing with this hand? Like, this is ridiculous. And then that can just like fire a game up sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for me, it's all about like trying to create a fun atmosphere at the table. And I'm, you know, some days you just go in and you're in a bad mood and it's not going to happen. Or some days you just, someone else is being really obnoxious at the table and you don't want to get involved in this as much in like the social dynamic of the game. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, uh, you know, I don't mind sort of taking that table captain role and just trying to, create a fun atmosphere for everyone. And then it's more fun for me. And then I have less of a problem staying for a long period of time. Nice. And at the end of the day, I think pros should take more responsibility in making the game fun for everybody. 
you know, not, not everyone is, not everyone is suited for that personality wise. And some people are introverted or, or they just don't, just doesn't come naturally to them. But like, you know, I think you want people who don't play poker for a living to walk away and say, Oh, that was fun. Rather than just like, I got my ass kicked by a bunch of pros and no one talked to me. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And plus, you know, if you are showing up every day to play yourself, like if it's not fun, yeah. what the hell are you doing? Right. It's, it's quite a miserable, miserable vacation in a way. Right. Um, yeah, I can totally, I totally with you. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. But how was it different in that final table setting? Cause obviously, you know, on some level you probably want to have fun, but that's probably not, you know, priority anywhere close to it. Um, sorry. How was it from what perspective? Like the, just from, from the perspective, like how did you approach the, the final table? Like, did you try to keep track of everything that's going on at the table? Did you try to just basically soak it all in and analyze the crap out of everything that's happening? Yeah. So we, we had a bit of a system. Like I had a team that was helping coach me and, and we, we would look at the, just again, like you're almost like you're an athlete, we'd review the film. So uh, going into the final table, I had already watched a lot of the video and tried to pick up as much as I could on people had strategies for how to play against different people. Mm -hmm. And at the table, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to pay attention to everything, but I, I honestly tried to keep it pretty light at the final table too. I was joking around and like throwing in chips casually and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. I think like, and playing very fast. And I think that that did throw some people off because they were like, why is he, why is he this casual? And like, I think I was trying to sort of portray this sense of confidence and like, mm -hmm. Oh, this is just another, this is just another cash game for me, which in, in a lot of ways, like I said, at the table, it really did feel like, but I think there's also a benefit to giving off that, um, that feeling of comfort to the other people at the table because they're like, well, why is he so comfortable? You know? Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was, it was a bit of a, I don't know. It was a bit of a move, but at the same time, it was just, that was the best way to pump myself up to just feel comfortable in the game. Mm -hmm. But I'm, at the same time, I'm always trying to like watch what's going on. I was way more focused during that final table than I would be in a, in a regular cash game. I mean, phones on airplane mode, you know, I'm, I'm not looking at my phone from noon till 1am. Um, and I'm just zoned in, like trying to mm -hmm. watch everything that goes on, pick up on things. But at the same time, uh, play fast, be casual, be fun. Yeah. Play my game. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting, especially if you create that sort of image, I can totally see how some people might steer away from trying to play a difficult hand against you. Cause you know, they might, might feel slightly, slightly out of their depth in a way. Yeah. Don't you feel that people in online in live poker scene sometimes overthink things a bit? Yeah, that can definitely happen. But I mean, I'm guilty of that too. Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty as well. I mean, it, it happens there because you just have so much time for a decision compared to online, right? And you start yeah. to pay attention to these little things of, oh, you know, he seems like he's in a, in a good mood, he's, he's confident, et cetera, et cetera. You, you, you put a bit too much stock into things that shouldn't matter, really. Yeah, I, th I think it's definitely true. I mean, I think the more I've played, the more I've realized just trusting my instincts is, is often the way to go, but there are spots, you know, and I, I, I play pretty quick, but there's spots where I do just take a lot of time and just try to 
piece it all together and, and stare the guy down and get as much info as I can. And maybe in those moments, sometimes I'm overthinking it, mm-hmm. but there are definitely, there are definitely times where I think you really do need to go back and try and you know. make sense of the entire head. Yeah. I've recently, well, recently, I mean, for the last few years, five years or whatever, I try to play just as fast as possible. First of all, it also yeah. makes the game more fun. Way more fun. Nobody wants to wait for you thinking. Just make your decision real quick. Snap, snap, snap. And also it intimidates some certain people because they, they're not comfortable with that. I think it does. I mean, even if you're playing a slow opponent, they take their time making their, their decision and then you just snap, make yours, mm-hmm. and then it's back on them. And they're like, they're, they don't have like time to sort of gather themselves and like get, you know, you're, you're yeah. actually controlling the pace yeah. to an extent. Yeah. Which sort of comes to something that's happening in chess you know obviously there's no time limit in in poker but in a way you know if you're playing against an opponent in a blitz game or a bullet game and he's making a decision on your time so to say while you're thinking he already made a decision basically it's super tough to play you're so out of your comfort zone you start rushing your decisions you start feeling the pressure and it definitely works the same way in poker as well even online sometimes but to a much less uh degree yeah so Alex, I want to talk to you about I know you said you're you're, you're planning to write a book. A right. book about the lifestyle of a poker player. And I can yeah. I'm already fascinated about the kind of stories you might be able to tell, right? Cuz the first story uh, of going to Europe that's already a great example of what poker can give to people, right? This this freedom of just not only just going to Europe to explore Europe as a North American, but go there and make money along the way. Yeah. Right? yeah. And then all the way up to your experience in, well, in mid and high stakes cash games around the world right. and, and, you know, the final table uh, in the biggest event in the world. So there's right. a lot of, lot out there uh what are some of your favorite moments in your career some of the things that you would really want to focus on you think they they really show the experience the path of a poker player so to say um well poker wise i mean some of my favorite moments are just the most fun games i've been in so for instance it was uh you know march madness this big like uh two to three week basketball tournament in the u.s that tends mm-hmm. to be a a very I, you've probably played in Vegas during March Madness, have you? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I've been only once. I think I've... Actually, no. You know what? I never went there. Every time no. I would be in commerce around that time, and I would okay. always end up just going home because I'm like, nah, I'm too tired. I've been here. I've been in the States too long. I don't want to go there. I've been close to going there a few times. Did you play more at commerce than you have at uh, in Vegas? No, no. It's just that in commerce, I really liked to go uh, for the oh, LAPC. LAPC, yeah. yeah. So I would go to LAPC, but most of my time in the States, I would still spend in, in Vegas playing the whole summer, yeah. basically. And then occasionally also for the winter games as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think it was March Madness 2016 was probably the series of most fun games I've ever played in. And it had nothing to do with results. I, I think I was a small winner at the end of it all. But uh, it was two weeks straight where basically 25.50 was running 
from 11 a.m. until 4 a.m. every day, uh, multiple tables, 25-50 PLO. Mm-hmm. And that's a big enough game to really get my interest. Not that not that five five isn't you know a lot of the time, but like twenty five fifty, no, that's fun. Like that's that's exciting stakes. Um, and we just had so much fun. Like we just we were doing all sorts of different games and side bets. And at one point, we were doing something called shot or straddle. So if you were under the gun, you had to either take a shot or straddle. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. most people would straddle, but then the real heroes would do both. And then there was one guy who was such a nit on on straddles that he wouldn't straddle, but he'd take a shot. And so we we would have that going for a couple hours. And like, it was just such a fun mix of guys uh, that were just like all the same people. And I think I played 107 hours over a week period there or over eight days, maybe it was. So like that was a lot of, a lot of poker. And uh, so I don't know if that, I mean, maybe some of that will make the book, but just in terms of like fun experiences I've had, it's all about the people sometimes in life and everything. And it, it, and it certainly can be in, in uh, cash game poker as well. Um, for like, from a non-poker perspective, there's lots of great stories. Like the time I lost 40 K playing beer pong when I was really young. And uh, there's a time I was driving from East coast, Canada, all the way to Vegas to move there basically. And left 30 K and chips and cash, which was most of the money to my name at the time in a hotel room in a peanut jar, went back to the room after I realized it, it was gone and ended up finding it in like the, the maid found it in like the garbage outside in the hallway. She'd already put it in the garbage. So oh, I recovered wow. that. So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of little um, anecdotes like that, I suppose that would definitely make the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want it to be certainly, there won't be much in terms of poker strategy, but there will be definitely moments from playing at the tables, but along with a lot of, I want to talk a lot, a lot about, you know, the experience of the lifestyle, the traveling, um, getting an Airbnb with a group of friends in another, in a foreign city and like some of the, some of the stuff you do there. Mm-hmm. So how do you lose 40 K playing beer pong? <laughs> and I had like 17 K to my name. So okay, <laughs> even more interesting. How do you lose 40 when you have 17 and, I, and well, all that so, in beer pong? Yeah. So it was, it was an Airbnb type thing. 2009 or 10, I don't know, uh, 10 maybe. Um, and the guy, one of the guys that I was staying with that summer, he basically like, he was beating me in a lot of prop bets, like just sort of smaller money as, as the house was going on. And I was just a big prop bet fish at the time. And he basically said to me, he's like, look, I'm, I'm pretty good at these games. I'm going to beat you out of a lot of money this summer. But like, if the a number gets too big, we'll settle for less. Like, he's like, don't worry about it. He's like trying to make sure he gets the action. Right. All right. And we started off playing beer pong for like 200 bucks a game. And it just like, I was just like chasing and doubling down and escalating. And then we ended up having a game where I was 32 K in the hole, which is, I don't know how it got that high, but, and we, I got three to one odds. So we bet eight K. So if I win, I'm down to eight K debt, which is manageable. And if I lose him at 40 K and we had them on the ropes, we had them like, it was, we got all their cups and they had still three of ours. So they have to make all three to send it into overtime. First mm-hmm. guy misses. So the next guy, has, this is the guy who's been hustling me. He has to make all three cups. Just goes boom, boom, boom. And then they beat us in overtime. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, but that was a low point in my life, but certainly book worthy. Yeah, absolutely. What did you learn from that experience? 
Well, I mean, I should probably say don't gamble outside your means. Um, uh, yeah, I learned a lot about tilt and about uh, chasing losses. And, and I, I try not to do too much high stakes gambling. That's not poker at this point. Mm-hmm. Occasionally I'll play some blackjack and it'll get a little bit big or occasionally I'll make a big sports bet, but sports, I don't mind as much. Cause it's, I, I don't, I don't feel the need to bet sports all the time. So like if the mm-hmm. Super Bowl is there and I want to make a pretty big Super Bowl bet, it's okay. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to just chase that the next day on a random, you know, college basketball game or something. Mm. So what's going on through your mind when you leave that room, right? You're 40 in the hole. The impossible happened. He hit three out of three, won the overtime. We were at this Airbnb and we were outside and I don't know. I just, I think I had a bit of a breakdown. I was, I was went to my room, probably cried, went to sleep, pretended it didn't happen. Yeah. Cause yeah, that's a tough one to swallow, right? It's um... yeah, it's a tough one to swallow. And like we did end up settling that number for less, like he said he would at the beginning of the summer, but yeah. it's still a lot of money. What are some of the biggest improvements you've made over the years in terms of money management? Like some of the things that you realized, like some some big lessons that you could share with people. Hmm. Um. Well, I'd say definitely cutting back on the DJing, like blackjack and that kind of stuff. Uh, was was big and that's something that was a problem for me six seven eight years ago and not really anymore mm-hmm. uh, I'd say game selecting so I used to just want to jump into the biggest game no matter what uh, if I can afford it at all and now you know sometimes you you know sometimes the 510 games better than the 2550 game even just in terms of like your your hourly expectation it's way better and mm-hmm. that's that's the thing that I think takes some maturity to realize especially if you think you have like this reputation of being someone who will play the biggest game in the room. And then sometimes you're not. So I think picking spots better. Um, also just uh, exercising and, and doing all the other peripheral stuff to like put myself, like I've definitely had better results poker wise when I've been on a regular consistent workout regimen. Mm-hmm. And that's something I wasn't doing as much early in my career. Right. So yeah, managing your ego in a way, is a big one, right? Because you know, being being able to just go lower just because it's more profitable and just look at things in terms of EV as opposed to your identity of like, hey, I'm this awesome high stakes player and I only play high stakes, right? Well, I think ego is a really interesting, really interesting thing in poker because it can really work for you and against you. Like, I do mm-hmm. think to some extent, certainly having a lot of self confidence is 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 important in poker as long as you also have like self-awareness and, and objectivity. So mm-hmm. I think you actually want to have self-confidence that borders on arrogance as long as maybe arrogance is the wrong word, but you know, like a lot of self-confidence is good if you're also willing to be objective. Right. Yeah. The it's trick is problem. being objective, right? Cause the feedback mechanism is not straightforward, right? Cause you it's can always all. justify yeah. every single loss by just like, Hey, whatever it's variance. I'm running bad, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Right? Absolutely, and that's that's the trick of trying to stay objective and uh, evaluate things for what they are, as opposed to just what you imagine the, them to be. Right. Because even those spirals that you mentioned before, right? When you're in a losing spiral, the only difference between a losing spiral and a winning spiral is 
in your mind, really, how you approach it, right? The hands are the same, like ups and downs, they happen all the time, except when you're in a so-called losing spiral, you're just zooming in and focusing on those losing hands and eventually you make way more mistakes and uh, there are more of those losing hands. That's the only thing that's happening, really. So cutting down on the degen things, I never struggled with myself, right? Sure. I was never much of a gambler. I mean, sure, I'm going to do prop bets and stuff at the table just because you have to, like in certain type of table. I mean, it's uh, it's part of a game. But yeah. away from that, like blackjack and all that stuff, even sports betting, not, not too big on that. But I wonder how did you manage to cut down on those things? Because it's easier said than done for people who are really into that sort of thing. So how did you make the decision and stick to it and what worked for you? Um, I'm not sure. I think just having more money. I think like when you have less money, you kind of want to gamble more on those risky things just to like run it up. And then when you have more mm. money, it's just funny how like when you suddenly have a little bit more money, you don't feel the need to risk it as much. You're actually, you can end up being more conservative. Mm. So that's a big thing. And just like <laughs> running the numbers on my blackjack results lifetime and realizing like, yeah, I'm not a professional blackjack player. This yeah. is like, I, I could use all that money I've lost on blackjack over the years, or I could use yeah. all that money I've lost on whatever other degening, prop betting, you know. Hmm. Yeah, I see. Interesting. Because, so it's basically like the gambling aspect was just, let's have a shot. Let's let's land into some money by some yeah. degening. Yeah, if, if you have like less than, I don't know, $20,000 and you can suddenly get to where you have say $50,000 that really changes a lot in terms of what you can do. And like, that's like a big mm -hmm. change in your lifestyle. And then right. when you already have a little bit more money in the bank, like going up by 50 or a hundred thousand doesn't really do as much for you. That utility, it's all that utility is all in like the, the first mm -hmm. money you have. I think. So um, that was part of it. And I don't know, I've never, yeah. I've never been too scared of going completely broke, I guess. Mm -hmm. I feel like Is I that can always still the case? Like, are you still comfortable uh, with an idea that you could just go broke? No, but I have, I have more money and I'm older. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so I'm definitely more conservative now because of that. So what happened? What changed for you in your mind after you had the huge score in WSLP? What's the number actually? I should have looked it up, but uh, I didn't. Uh, well, it was four million for third, and I. But I, I only had about half of myself. It's funny. Mm -hmm. I took more of myself in the ten k stud eight than I did in the ten k main event, which is like okay. very convoluted, weird logic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and then there's tax and all that, but yeah, it was a big number. Um, uh, what changed? Well, it was weird at first because I. I didn't know how to handle it at first in the sense that like normally I'm used to feeling like I have to grind and I want to grind and I have these goals for myself and I want to get to this like certain place money wise, or I want to like mm -hmm. achieve a certain amount of results in cash games. And then like I had this massive infusion. It's like, well, like what now, like what am I even grinding towards? So there was definitely a period where I just felt like less motivation to play. And that sucked because I like to play, mm -hmm. but it, it's hard to go in. Like I, I came back to Halifax and the biggest game here is like five, five PLO. And it's just, and that's Canadian dollars too. And yeah, the $10 straddles normally on, but it was hard to go from winning all that money to playing that game and taking it seriously. Like it was a tough transition. Um, 
plus it was just weird for the first couple of months. Like there was some, all the stuff you might expect, like some people would treat me a little differently and like people I would hear from people I hadn't heard from in years. And like, there's an adjustment period to publicly winning a lot of money in the way that you're perceived because of that. And not, mm-hmm. not that I'm complaining, but it's, it just comes with the territory. Interesting. I want to dig into um, people treating you differently. Like what were some of the behaviors that you noticed that you didn't expect maybe? Um, it wasn't too bad, honestly, but just, it was a lot of like the peripheral friends reaching out. Some people would have like business ideas they'd want me to like invest in, or a couple people asked for loans or just like people I hadn't heard from reaching out. And I'm like, why is this person reaching out and just kind of questioning all that? It really wasn't too bad from like my, my core friends. Mm-hmm. Like some, sometimes you feel like some friends are a little bit jealous maybe, but like in terms of like my really good friends, it was no issue. It was just more like the peripheral people. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. Just like a lot of those like Facebook message um, messages from someone you hadn't talked to in four years. And mm. sometimes it was just to wish me congratulations, which was great. But sometimes it, like I felt like they wanted something. Right. Which is weird. So you had like a couple months of the f- weird feeling of like, okay, what do I do now exactly? Because like the normal game doesn't appeal too much. So in that period, what are some of the decisions, if you made any decisions about, you know what, I'm going to do something else or was Honestly, there any I was, of that? I was just partying a lot for like at least six weeks. Uh-huh. So then that's also, your head's not as clear. You're hungover. Like, yeah. Like that's not, it wasn't getting me to a better place. Yeah. But it was like, it was like this short-term band-aid solution to like some of this anxiety and some of this like existential crisis, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I went to, so that was like summer of 2019. And then I went to Rosvedov and then that's, that's where I did my first like serious grind since the main. Uh, and I was playing a lot of hours and like, I really enjoy I mean, I like to play, so. Mm-hmm. So that was, I was starting to feel normal again by then. Right. So how do you see yourself now? Like what, what's your identity in terms of who are you? Um, are you still see yourself as a full-time poker player and, uh, and do that for, for the time being, or you're getting more and more interested with the side projects? I'm still playing a decent amount of poker because I'm playing a decent amount online right now and, and some home games and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, I do want to do some other pro. So I, I, I own two properties here in Nova Scotia. So that one of them I've already had, had for a few years that I rent out to golfers. It's up in Cape Breton, which is like this beautiful, like remote part of Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of beautiful golf courses that are right next to the house. And, and so I rent that one out. And then I recently bought another property that's uh, just kind of an income generating property with a couple residential units and a couple commercial units. So like, that's not, that stuff's not super time consuming, but it's definitely another project I have on the go. And then, um, like I said, I want to write the book, but it's, I need to just do it because I've been talking about it for long enough. Mm -hmm. One of those things, sometimes it's hard to get that inertia to really, to get it going, but, but I do still consider myself a full-time player as well. Um, but I wouldn't mind diversifying somewhat over the next few years, but at the end of the day, you know, I love to play. It was, I was really disappointed. There was obviously for good reason, but there was no world series this year. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess there was an online one, but I didn't play any of that. 
but I had been really looking forward to to playing some of these like bigger events that I haven't played in the past, like some of these 10K mixed game events, which I really was super looking forward to. So whenever the next one is, I'm definitely going to play a lot of the like 10K, 08, stud, Raz, that kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I guess we haven't like sort of talked about that at all, but mixed games are definitely my favorite type of poker, even though PLO is my best game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been spending a lot of time lately just getting, trying to get better at mixed games, study them as much as possible, play as much as possible. What do you enjoy about the mixed game? Well, I like that you're just... They keep you more engaged because the game's changing every six or seven hands or whatever it is, every certain amount of minutes. Normally it's a certain amount of hands. Uh, so you, you can't get too complacent and you're just like, they're just, you know, getting different parts of your brain involved. And I also like that, like you, you find the more you play these mixed games that poker concepts just carry over from game to game. You can watch. And somebody said this in a video. I can't remember if it was Richard Greco or, or somebody on run at once said that, like uh, watching videos of a game, even if it's a game that you don't play or know, is going to help you with the game that you play. Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I found that to definitely be true because the concepts are all linked. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I have the same experience every time I, I venture into the mixed game world, which as of late is less and less. But um, uh-huh. it's definitely always the same experience of, you know, you have these aha moments of, things just clicking together, like something you worked on in a different game, some theory aspects, and then you just see a hand play out in a completely, like, especially for me, that happens in draw games or stud games when all of a sudden the concept from those games translates to a flop game. And you're like, oh, okay, now I see about, you know, let's say the, the bluffing range ideas and, and, and some such thing. It's it's really interesting how, how it works. And um I think most people who play mixed games have the same experience of, you know, experiencing these transitional moments where they're not sort of concepts transfer from one game to another. So have you played um, much in the way of live mixed cash? Not at all. No, I haven't played much live mix. Um, okay. Like the only mix live that I played really is, uh, well, PLO and Hold'em mix. Yeah. And I think I played, oh, actually, I played some years ago. I played Do 7 Triple Draw live. I managed okay. to play it heads up. That was funny, actually, because <laughs> we, we oh, were really? playing the whole night with this guy. We, we played PLO um, in the six max table and or whatever, the, you know, yeah. the full, full ring table, obviously. And at some point, we decided that we want to play heads up, Do 7 Triple Draw, high stakes. <laughs> we just started talking about the games that we like. And okay. we were like, oh, do seven triple is the most fun. So let's make it high stakes. Let's play it here. And we, and that was in Malta. And we asked oh, the I casino see. floor of like, can you guys, like anybody knows how to deal do seven triple draw? Yeah. So first of all, the answer was no. And second, we can't uh, offer you this game in, in casino because we are not licensed to provide this game. Right. So we got a bit upset because like, hey, you know, we're regular customers coming here all the time. Like anything can be done. Sure, we'll look into it. So th- the next day they got the license for us really? for the game. <laughs> they still didn't have the dealer. So we actually had to teach a dealer how to deal the game. And we spent like, I think a couple of days playing high stakes, uh, do seven triple draw with this guy. That was a lot of, a lot of fun. What stakes were you playing? Uh, do you know what? I don't remember. I mean, high stakes for me back then. Right, so it wasn't anything extraordinary. I, I would assume like 
Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't too bad. Like uh, we ended up breaking even in the end, but okay. Like I don't, I don't actually remember the stakes. Like that that's okay. a good question. I used to play back in the day. That was still full tilt time. I would play like 300 600 um on full tilt poker. Even like I yeah, I actually played the 1k 2k as well. That's pretty huge. Tilt. That was so, huge. But that was back in the day when uh, nobody knew how to play draw games. That was basically when it in, got introduced. Did you uh, study? Online. Um well, I read Super System too. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, that was, yeah. that was basically enough to crush the game. I think. Yeah. yeah, but then it quickly became evident that you know a lot of people started improving rapidly, and I I wasn't willing to. Um, I don't know what would have happened if the Black Friday didn't happen, right? Because yeah. after Black Friday, you could still play, do seven triple draw on stars, but it wasn't heads up. Like you okay. would always have to battle six max, and it wasn't really didn't appeal to me. And probably <laughs> for, for for the better anyway, because like I I don't think I would have back then anyway. I don't think I had uh, the same resolve as a lot of people who I know that really took the game very seriously and just basically went for a lot of theory studies and just deep dive into. I would end would have ended up broke so probably black friday <laughs> was a good thing for me yeah deuce to seven's a fun it's a pretty good game i, oh, like I it love it yeah i love it it's it's so much fun it's so dynamic and and uh the swings can be pretty insane even though it's a oh, fixed yeah. game fixed limit yeah. game all those one winner limit games can be big swings yeah yeah it's interesting you see like now we have a lot of talk about uh you know no limit holdem getting solved real-time assistance, all that. And I'm just thinking, well, you know what? The games shifted throughout the years all the time. Like back in the day, nobody played No Limit Hold'em. It was only stud games. Yeah. Then it shifted to No Limit Hold'em. Then all of a sudden, PLO showed up from out of nowhere. Short deck. Short deck, yeah. And then all sorts of variants, like six-card this, five-card that. Yeah. You know, pineapple and whatnot. And it feels like, you know, every time you come to... Well, every time I come to Vegas, which is for summer, it feels like they introduced a new game. Yeah. And it's always like, oh, we just invented this game on the way to Vegas. And you know that now, no, guys, you, you've probably started it like in December yeah. in LA. Yeah. You played yeah. it for six months and now all of a sudden you have this new bright idea and let, let's let's play it with the Europeans. It's so funny that they actually think that anybody believes yeah. that crap, but <laughs> it's still fun to see new games being introduced uh, now yeah. and again sure which is your favorite game actually from the mix Ooh. lately i've been really enjoying badoogie actually okay but i don't know if I, I i don't want to say that's my favorite game uh stud eight or better is probably that's one I, i'm very confident in and one i really enjoy um but i really like them all like it's you know i, I like the variety mm -hmm. badoogie is definitely a pretty cool game because there, there's a lot of bluffing opportunities in that game yeah, and that's the beauty with playing a mix. You sort of don't get bored. You right? don't get bored, yeah. And plus, you know, say you play the same lineup in PLO all of the time. You pretty much already know who's who's who, who's doing what, where are the weaknesses, yeah. what are you going to be exploiting, what's the game plan. And right. in a mixed game situation, it takes a while to figure out, like, who's bad at what. Because everybody sucks at something. Like, nobody can be okay. very good in all these games. 
that's another thing I like about mix is like, you know, everyone's got a, a game. So a lot of the time the mixed game players are notoriously not as strong in no limit PLO. Mm. And then you have the no limit PLO guys who are not as strong in some of the mixed games. And then the, the more games you introduce into the mix, the more likely it is that everyone's got some sort of game that they're bad at. So, you know, it's, it's tough to stay, to stay sort of relevant in all of those games or to sort of know the theory in all of those games. And obviously yeah. I have ones I'm better and worse at, but that's, that's definitely part of the fun. Yeah. And anyway, like in a live casino setting, it just feels like mixed games are always so much more fun. Right. Everybody's a bit more relaxed, you know, the things are mixing up and right. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a real fun experience. What do you think actually personality wise, what did you learn from poker or how did poker well define you in a way or mold you? Um, I guess one big thing I think is that I was more of an emotional person before poker than I am now. So, which isn't to say that like emotion can kind of work both ways in poker. Like, I think you need to be tuned into your emotions to pick up on information from the other players, but I think you also need to be able to kind of control your own emotions so that you don't tilt and so that you stay focused on what you need to be doing. So I think that because I, I, I learned how important it was to control my emotions at the poker table, that sort of transferred over to other parts of my life. Mm. In what way does it manifest itself? Like when making decisions in other parts of your life, you're just being more rational about them or, or how does it show up? Um, yeah, I would say that. Like just more rational, being able to take the emotion out of the equation and really like think, not, not that it always works like that, but I think just mm. more often, um, yeah, being able to sort of analyze the situation and just like, you know, poker is, it's all about analyzing things. And I've always added just kind of that analytical mind, but I'm sure that playing poker has helped me just analyze other situations and certainly other, um, whether it's like in the idea of investing in a business or something like that, I think poker helps sort of give you the mindset to think about ROI and think about upside and downside and sort of risk, risk tolerance and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. what do you feel like if somebody were to ask you alex um this whatever 19 year old guy and i'm thinking about going into poker what would be the best advice you can give them huh uh, probably don't do it right now i mean it's like when i entered poker i entered at kind of the perfect time like how old are you i'm uh, 36 now 36. So like I'm 33. So we're, we're kind of in that same era yeah. where we entered poker. I don't know. I don't know what year you started playing, but was it like around 05 or? No, a bit later. Uh, I don't actually remember. Like I think 07, 06, 07, something like that. Yeah. Like that's the perfect time to come into poker because there was, you could, you could really run up a roll from nothing then. Like the games yeah. were good, but I think the people that came in before that, the games were even better, but they, they didn't, need to be good at poker to beat the games. So they ended up a lot of those guys who came in a little bit before us, like they fizzled out because the games were so good and they didn't really develop the skill set. Whereas I think like roughly when we came in, you could still run up a role, but like there was now there was more training site information and games were starting to get tougher and you sort of learn some of those skills. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of a 19 year old today, like, and I have had a few people message me like younger people and they've been like, you know, so you did in the world series. That was awesome. Like, can you give me any advice? Can you coach me? Whatever. And I basically like, 
you know, I, I would say don't quit your day job unless you're like super, super serious about it because there's the barrier to entry is a lot higher now. There's a lot more good players. Um, and the only reason that myself and other, other, you know, yourself and other people like us are able to still make a living doing it are, is because we've been doing it for so long. And we've got that like body of knowledge at this point, I think. Yeah. And to come fresh right now into this climate, I mean, you have to really, really, really want it uh, and work hard at it to, to succeed. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, we, we didn't have to work as hard to get in to, to start making money. Oh, absolutely. At the same time, if you really, really, really want to go for it now, it's easier than ever because all the good material is out there, right? Back then, when, when we tried to study the game, I mean, it was like sporadic. There was not a lot of good information about some forms of the games and, you know, it was a lot of trial and error. So now it's much easier to actually go yeah. and get good at it. That's true. Right. You know what? One, one amazing resource that's been there for a long time, as long as I can remember, propokertools.com is like, Oh yeah, I think in odds Oracle, I think people underestimate how valuable a resource that is, mm. especially for the mixed games. Exactly, yeah, especially for like running stud spots and like yeah, yeah, super super valuable. Yeah, because that's the thing, you know. Whenever tools with bells and whistles come out, you feel like, oh yeah, that's the new, new age, new era, and you sort of forget about the basics. Because I feel like, obviously, I coach people, and I see that a lot of people who come into poker with uh, starting off from the new tools from all the you know solvers and and whatnot they dismiss the value of just the basic concepts you know oftentimes people can't even give me a proper answer about so what's the minimum defense frequency in this situation they're like blanks there of like i don't know i need to check it in the solver no you don't because it's pure math right math problem right right so yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I don't actually know what the thing I on some level I agree with you that you know probably the best advice to give somebody who asks you about getting into poker is probably saying don't, don't do it. Yeah. Because a, a person who's not gonna be deterred by it is probably the kind of person who's gonna do well in poker anyway. Yeah. Uh, and if just one no is is enough to steer you away, the probably yeah. for the better. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. And at the same time, like in terms of if you actually have the dedication with the tools that we have now, and also there are so many good coaches out there, so much good information about uh, how to be a professional poker player, right? Because it's it's more than just the theory. There's there's the soft skills that you need to develop. There's need you know, certain specific approaches on on money management, on on decisions of how to select the tables, all that stuff. You know, which for us it came through a lot of experience, a lot of bumps along the way, and a lot of scars. Right, right. nowadays it's much easier to get that sort of knowledge and up to speed with these things from just listening to to some smart people or you know hiring a good coach or probably a lot of good material out there in form of video course or whatever game coaches. And yeah, there's certainly, there's a lot more out there. Uh, it also depends on the way you learn and it depends on like the sort of, uh, environment you thrive in. Like, I don't think I would have done as well coming up in like today's era with how mm. the players being better and it being all these more like technical tools, because my, my strength has always been, uh, adjusting to, uh, weaker players and exploiting them and not so much game theory stuff. So like that gets tougher for me as the field gets stronger. So like, I've always said that my edge uh, against fish is bigger than, you know, some pros who are much better than me at poker, because that's just like 
it's easy to say, well, yeah, I'm good against fish. Everyone's good against fish, but I'm especially good against fish and I'm not as strong against regs. And I've worked over the last two years, three years, that's changed somewhat. I've worked harder on my game from like a PLO theory standpoint because I needed to. Um, it wasn't good enough to just like rely on what I've been relying on. Yeah. And I've sort of like learned to learn how to learn that style of poker, learned how to, you know, use solvers or use a more uh, theoretical uh, approach to the game. But that like never, it was never came as naturally to me. Mm. It's interesting what you said about if you started in this day and age with all the modern tools, you wouldn't do as good. I actually think for me, it's probably the opposite uh-huh. In a sense that I would have become a better poker player way quicker. Because back in the day, you didn't need to be a very good poker player to crush the games, right? That's true. Were, yeah. So I would have become much better, much quicker, because I do love all the new tools. And you know, to have all this information and play around with it, I enjoy it. But I think what would have happened, I would not get into poker. Right. Because just looking from the outside, I would look at, oh, you know, there's a lot of theory work, et cetera, et cetera. I'd rather just do something else because it seems like a lot of work is required, right? Yeah. And I think, because coming back to what you said earlier, that, you know, people who went into poker before us, a lot of them fizzled out. I think some of the aspects there were, you know, people who went then, they went for different reasons other things appeal to them. And then yeah. as soon as the hard work of studying a lot came into the equation, that wasn't what they signed up for. So they didn't even, even want to go that path, right? And a lot of people luckily managed to quit, um, you know, in the green and open their businesses and whatnot. And obviously, a lot of people just refused to adapt, refused to change and just sort of, uh, you know, went went all the way down. Right. Definitely. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy how much the landscape of poker has changed in the last, I don't mm. know, 12, 15 years in general. Yeah. And not only the game, even the business itself, right? Cause if we think about online business, like last week I had a conversation with um, Joey Ingram. We we're actually publishing an episode today oh. as we're recording with you, we're going to publish right. it with him. And we talked about what's going on in the poker industry and what's the outlook, et cetera. Right. Yeah. And in many ways, the industry is, is still in the infancy. We're, you know, changing as the world is changing. Cause let, let's say when we were starting poker, right. There was no Twitter or at least it wasn't huge. You know, there was not all, all the social media Twitch or, or whatnot. We, yeah. we would watch, the high stakes yeah. poker with with great interest, right? Or rail the full tilt yeah. poker yeah. games and and right. just admire guys, you know, flipping half a million dollar every other hand. Yeah, a lot of the appeal was just wow, these guys are playing for massive money, and that was exciting. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I saw those games, which was ridiculous. You know, it was before I started playing for real. I just opened an account on full tilt started playing free rolls or something. And I saw that there's this cash game going on. And my first thing was like, well, yeah, this has to be play money. Like there's yeah. not a single person in the, in this whole wild world who would actually play for this type of money. Like I couldn't, couldn't really believe it. Well, actually when it, it was, when I was in Amsterdam that, that three months, I was telling you about that was when, uh, that some of the biggest pots, I think, I don't know if those records still hold up, but like those, those Antonius versus Isildur, I think oh, they, yeah. they played the biggest pot of online history at that time, and it might still be. 
the biggest, I don't know, like that it was like a $1.2 million pot. And I was yeah. railing it live when it happened actually, which was crazy. Uh-huh. Cause they were playing that, like, uh, they were like three tabling. I think it was 501 K PLO, but there was a mandatory three K raise and a mandatory nine K three bet. So they were effectively mm-hmm. playing three K nine K PLO, which is just insane to think about. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> Oh, it's all there. We talked a bit about about him also with Raul Gonzalez. I don't know if you know Raul Gonzalez. He another name. Well, a screen name, right? Because yeah. it's a football player originally. But the screen name yeah. Raul Gonzalez on yeah. on Poker Stars. He uh, he used to be Sun Iker on Full Tilt Poker. Who is that guy in real life? What's his name? Uh, Falke. I mean, I don't know if you've met him. He never plays live. You you never seen him. He never plays live. I mean, he played some events, but. He just doesn't travel for for live poker at all. You guys did play live with him once. Though. Is he? He's a German guy, right? He is a German guy. Where Where did you play? So I might be wrong about. It might be a different screen name I'm thinking of, but it was World Series of Poker Europe, uh, 25k eight game event in Roosevelt of 2019. Hmm. It might have been somebody. I might be wrong on the. He does he I have mean, like a backing conglomerate or something? Role or maybe well, it's somebody else. I mean, he he is doing some backing, yeah. yeah. Backing conglomerates sounds sounds pretty fucking incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know if you played him. Maybe you played one of the other German guys. I don't think he traveled for for Life Poker 2019. I don't know. Okay. Regardless, I mean, we talked a bit about you know he battled against this Soldor a lot, and like yeah. he, now he retired. Raul Gonzalez yeah. did, and um, he he posted some graphs, and it was really really interesting conversation. Also, he's a mixed game player. You know, he transitioned from Hold'em and uh, went into the highest stakes mixed game there are in the world of online poker. So it's yeah. quite interesting, and it's interesting what happens to like how how can you even think about what goes through their mind, like. Antonius and Isolder, right? Yeah. 1.2 million pot. Like, what the hell is that? How how do you wrap your mind around around it, right? Yeah. This I don't know. Insane amount of money in one hand. Like, imagine it's, it's not even a tournament which just goes on for like you're investing you know, a week of your life into it. It's yeah. just like snap of the fingers and it's is that's it, right? Yeah. And obviously, bigger pots have been played in live poker. Mm. it's crazy it's absolutely sometimes crazy. i wonder though like and like when you see these big high stakes poker i wonder how much of that was throughout the years was always people like playing on their own money like you know there's probably some sort of action swapping action sales going on like when you're looking at those old high stakes poker games but who knows i mean those guys those guys did just have a lot of money then too poker was easier and there was like yeah. a lot of sponsorships and stuff available too yeah but you know i mean Sure, there was some backing and um, staking and whatnot going on. Uh, there, there still is at the highest stakes, but there are a lot of people who are just rolled for those games. They play their own yeah. money. And yeah. the craziest thing is that I know that some of the games that are running in the online world, they're actually cross-booked. So we're looking at like whatever, super high stakes already, yeah. but in, in reality, they're even higher stakes. Yeah. Right? Because just the poker size is just don't offer stakes high enough for some of these guys, which is like, well, you know, 
But of course, there's now there's the crypto guys too. Like there's guys who got super rich in crypto who are already yeah. poker players, and now they just they have like hundred x their bankroll, and they they can play really big yeah. stakes. Yeah, I remember. I think it was 2017. Where, where, when was the first um, high score, so to say, for for crypto people? That was 2017. I think December 17. Yeah. Yeah, and I was I was in Vegas in that December 17. I remember like the, the only table talk was about the price of Bitcoin. <laughs> that was so funny. We were, we were probably actually playing together a lot in that time. I think now that I, now that I think about it. Yeah, maybe. Right I remember there, that. Too. You were playing a decent amount at the win, right? As well as Arya? Uh, I mostly was playing Bellagio, but whenever I got into a game in win, which is basically whenever a good game was running, I would try to try to go there. So yeah, we, yeah. we played like, I think one year we, we played a decent amount um, in win. Matt yeah, because I think I played with you more at the win game. than you did at the very Yeah, I, 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 I didn't play Bellagio myself. Yeah, yeah, I was mostly in in Bellagio and then Aria occasionally. Just if uh, the action in in Bellagio was was not not amazing, which happened. So were you playing a lot of no limit in Bellagio? No, not at all. I just play PLO. Just the PLO there. So like quarter fifty, fifty, one hundred. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I never liked those games as much because I thought that, like the fifty hundred, especially, it plays very shallow, doesn't it? I guess it depends. It really depends, yeah. And it also... Because, like, you see, I, I like to start games. I, I like to show up in the morning and just... I start okay. the table and then I probably leave um, around dinner and I okay. just, you know, play that way. Um, so when I start, obviously, everybody's pretty short, myself yeah. included. Towards the end of the day, hopefully, everybody's pretty deep. Otherwise, the game sucks, <laughs> right? Yeah. So... Uh, it usually just goes all the way from like shallow stakes to to high to to more action, and uh, you know if the game's good, you you're gonna have like straddles running and the usual stuff. So, yeah. but yeah. then again, I think what happens in Bellagio, which doesn't happen in Aria that often, in Bellagio we would be just content with keeping the table alive for like five days in a row. Just like yeah. the same rugs playing each other and like, fuck it, we're here, we're stuck here, we might as well play and yeah. eventually somebody's going to show up. That doesn't right. happen that often in Aria. You don't see just the same rugs just battling. Yeah, it's true. And, and it, we used to do it at the win a lot. Um, mm -hmm. There was like four of us that would always start the game and we would battle for a while and people would jump it up. It, that's, people have started cherry picking more and now, of course, there's the private game situation too, which is yeah. you know, hurt the high stakes below. Yeah. What's your take on the private games within the casino or semi-private games? Because they're not even called private games. It's just like um, there's a yeah. waiting list which somehow miraculously always shows up. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan. And I mean, maybe it's partly because I haven't been getting in a lot of those games, but I haven't really... I, I just don't like it conceptually. I'm okay with like a fixed starting lineup even, but I think that the, there should be a proper waiting list where anyone can show up and get on the waiting list. And of course, they have ways around that. They'll say they'll keep a stock there, and they'll just say it's somebody when it's not. They'll skip people up, and I mean, I don't, I don't like it personally, um, but I understand why it's happening. Um, I understand that a lot of weaker players they don't want to play with like the same regs every time. The thing that's annoying about it is that it's not really the way that the regs are chosen for those games. A lot of the time, it's not like they people say, "Oh, if you're like fun and you can like talk to fish and you can like." 
interact, you'll have no problem getting into private games, but it doesn't really work like that. It's more like if you're friends with the guy who runs the game mm-hmm. and he can stake you and you can just play tight and win in the game, then you're going to get in the game. But someone who plays well and is fun, but like doesn't have that connection is not going to get in the game. And so, you know, I don't love it, but I understand why it's happening and it's the world we live in. And, uh, you know, I just, I wish that the casinos did a little bit more to try and protect the public games uh, because you have these people who run the private games poaching players away from the public games and it's super blatant. And there was a lot of, a lot of stuff that went down over the last few years. I don't know if you were super around when like there were these super private games happening at the win and people would come and steal players from RA and bring them over to the win. And it was pretty messy. Mm. I think I even played some of those games to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably, well, I didn't get in all of them, but like, you know, yeah. It, well, I didn't get all of them either. And there's always like this a special game of like a select group of people, which is basically just restricted to that. And that's always been happening. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to be very strict with um, what's the, like how to handle that situation. Because like you said, it's understandable why this is happening. Perhaps yeah. the, the, the way in which this is handled is not really really good and it's hurting the public games and it's yeah and also like you know in general always the crowd of the floor managers like i don't know i don't even know where i'm going with this but you know in the online world you don't have to deal with any of that crap Right. Whereas yeah. when you go for the the live trips, like it's always like, okay, so let's start thinking about the tipping uh, immediately as we arrive. Like, who are the main guys? Like, hey, good to see. You. I'm back in town. I'm here for X amount of weeks. Here you go. Yeah. Buy yourself some nice, you know, all that stuff. Which is, and in general, I mean, it's the states. Your you guys with your tipping culture, it's just. It's just fucking weird. And I probably should have gotten more into that than I did. I mean, you remember Ponch, right? You're the the guy at the win. He he died. Floor manager. He had white hair. He died. Yeah. Do you do you know who I'm picking? Who I'm saying? I think so. What what's his name? What, he, his actual he, name is John, but he went by Ponch. yeah John, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what when did that happen? Uh I think three years ago now. Three years ago, wow! Because yeah, last time I saw him was three years ago. Because I I wasn't in Vegas for the last two years. Yeah, three yeah. years ago I last saw him. Jesus, he was a great guy, and he was always oh. absolutely my favorite supervisor. And he understood how to properly run a room. And you know what? He was fair too. He ran a fair game, and we didn't have any of those private games at the win when he was running it. But at the same time, like he would appreciate tips from the regs. But yeah, he just did everything like I. He ran the game the way it should have been run, and honestly. Unfortunately, that place has gone a little bit downhill after he died, just in terms of like allowing the private games. And, mm. But he was sort of, yeah, he was he was the best. He was absolutely the best. Oh, I'm so As sad a person, to hear. He was him all the time. It was very sad. Yeah. What happened? Uh, he had a heart attack. Oh shit. So, yeah. Oh man. Yeah, he was such a nice guy. It's really running the game, and it seemed like he 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 was doing it for all the good reasons. He was actually creating yeah. an atmosphere, right? It's you know? for the players, yeah. Yeah, for the players. And he would actually, like from all the people in Vegas who are in the business, he was the one who actually remembered everybody's name. 
That's something I said to my friend the other day. I, cause I still talk about Ponch. He was, a, he was a good friend of mine. I said, you could have these guys come from Europe and they would only come for the world series. Yeah. They'd come for three, four weeks every year. They'd come into the poker room and they hadn't been there in a year. He'd shake their hand. He knew their name. He knew what country they were from. He knew what games they played. Like who does. Yeah. And especially for some of these European guys who maybe English is not their first language. Like I, that, I had to imagine that would be something they'd really appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. Especially never mind English not being the first language. It's just, you know, if your real name is, uh, not a common name. Like it's easier to remember that somebody's like Steve or something, right? But right. you know, go ahead and try to remember the name that you can can barely pronounce, right? Right. And and he was just really really good at that. Yeah. Oh man, it's so sad to hear. Very it was sad. The one bright spark in the floor manager world, and he sure was. Yeah. yeah. Big time. Oh well. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Wynn was always like a such a beautiful place to to play in a way that sort of offered a nice package of you have your own little nicely set up room with pretty good people working the room and you yeah. have good food options and it's in a beautiful casino so sort of like a full package was was there. Yeah. No, it, 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 very much so and still still a great place to play but it, it does have a different feeling without Ponch there cuz he was always in that high stakes room too. Oh yeah, he put in the hours. Mm. Ah, you know what? Talking to you, I realize just how much I miss playing live. I love it. Yeah, I miss it yeah. too. And I've been able to play. Like we have some very small home games here, but like I, I miss being able to play big games in Vegas, and mm. especially those uh, those those games that just go all night, where you have a couple players that are just really good action, and everyone's mm. just super engaged. Yeah, I don't miss playing all night because I, much like you, you described how you learned over the years when to quit yeah. and just to manage your your schedule a bit more. Because you know, as you get older, it gets tougher and tougher to reset the schedule. Like for me, it's it's very yeah. evident. If I if I get out of my sleeping rhythm, so to say, I'm I'm just fucked. I, mean, I have to take a couple of days off because there's no no way around it. Yeah, that's fair, but I think there's something about those those games that do go all night. Like they go all night for a reason, and like oh, they're yeah. just super super engaging. Yeah, but usually, you know, on my trips, I I try to steer away from those, and then towards the end of the trip, which is anyway when most of the action is towards the end, like when the series are coming to an end, that's when those super long sessions come in, and then you sort of don't care about you know because you're gonna fly a very different time zone anyway, so you might as well. Yeah, but yeah, I, I miss it because it was always a nice way for me to split my year into two sort of with, yeah. you know, you get all excited about playing live and then you get back and you like, I remember every time I would come back from Vegas, I would have so much passion for playing online. I would be just like a kid in the playground of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to play online poker. This is amazing. Yeah. Right. And same same goes like you're on a flight to go to play in Vegas, you're already thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to be in Bellagio. Yeah. Like, so there's two things in, in your, in your normal schedule throughout the year, which sort of bring out, bring, take you out from the mundane and, and put you in this sort of little Disneyland right. experience. Definitely. And world series poker always feels like Disneyland or whatever. I mean, I, I, I just go hard during the world series. I take maybe two days off in six weeks. Yeah. So. Yeah. Me too. I, I try to, 
sort of pace myself with, you know, having good food throughout. So like taking dinner breaks and just, you know, quitting sessions early occasionally, just hanging out with friends and enjoying it. Because like the first first couple of years when I was there, I was always towards the end, just burning out completely because just making all the bad decisions of like playing 16 hour sessions, five days in a row, and then wondering why, why I can't like find my car in the car park or something like that. Right. Right, right. What do you think? Because I'm coming back to that question of, you know, if we have a 19-year-old guy asking for a device and, and saying like, hey, I want to play poker. What do you think are some of the things that people are likely to take away from poker, which are going to be useful for, for their life. And I know we already discussed about what it was for you, but like, what do you think, especially if we zoom in on, on live poker, because I, I talk about these sort of things yeah. with a lot of online poker players and online poker is obviously way different because, you know, you're unlikely to pick up a lot of useful life skills. You're not going to be yeah, becoming a better, better at socializing and, you know, that, that oh. type of thing. Networking, uh, social skills. Um, if you're someone who's not super social, maybe playing a lot of live could make you social if you're willing to like be open-minded to that. Um, and then all the, all the usual like analyzing risk that all, all of that stuff. But I think like you meet so many interesting people at the live table and getting to know them and what they do for a living. I think if you're someone who's, you know, open-minded to all that, uh, you can definitely make some good connections or just like learn about different industries. And well, that's one of the things, another thing I love about live poker is that it's just this big melting pot of all different types of walks of life. Now, maybe when you get to higher stakes games, you are dealing with people who have had more success versus when you're playing like a one, two game. Yeah. Um, but even within that, you people have had a lot of success in different areas, whether it's poker or whether it's business or whether they're doctors or just almost any kind of job you can imagine. Mm. and it's so also shows you sort of that we're all just people in the end of the day like it doesn't matter what career you're pursuing like it doesn't matter what kind of education you got at that table we're all pretty equal i mean some some people like basically everything's equal i mean obviously people are going to react differently they're going to play differently skills set is different but opportunity is equal you can you can anybody can do it well that's the beauty of poker and that's when people ask me like i guess when people are curious about poker i say that one of the things that draws me to it is that i can't go play lebron james in basketball first of all he won't play me second of all like he's not going to take time out of his schedule to play me in a one-on-one game and second of all i have absolutely no chance of scoring a point against him yeah whereas in poker um Anyone can play against basically the best poker players in the world. As long as they put it, I mean, anyone can enter those 300 K super high rollers or hundred K super high rollers, and they will face off against the best players in the world. And not only that, but they actually have a chance to beat them. Like it's, it's not impossible. Some complete fish could come in. And I mean, I guess it would be really hard in like the best structure, like super high roller for a fish to, to win, but like it could happen. And yeah. certainly bad players have won the main event. Um, so I love that. I love that about poker, that it's, it is egalitarian. It, it, well, until you get into these private games that we were talking mm-hmm. about. But for the most part, if you have the money, you can play the game and you can play the best players. 
Yeah. And if you have the money and no experience, you are very likely to be able to play the best players because they're very welcoming towards you. That's they, right. You they, can get really the if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're inexperienced. But like, really, like, you know, in, in any given session, certainly in a cash game session, a bad player can win. And that's, that's cool. Mm. That's part of what the, the appeal of poker is. And the best player can, can get destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, what it teaches you about life also is a sort of a good lesson, which you don't really get in other games, right? Um, uh-huh. Specifically that you can do everything right. Yeah. And still lose. And you have to live with that. And you have to take responsibility for your actions. You can't, you can't just always blame everything on, uh, on the downswing or the, the cards or the dealer or the floor or whatever the excuse for the day. You have to just sometimes just face yourself in the mirror, say, yeah, I fucked up. I, I you know, clearly don't know what I'm doing in these situations and I was just being exploited. And what's your hope for the book? Like for when somebody reads it, what do you hope they take away from the book? Um, well, I want people to just learn what it is that you and I and so many people do for a living that we have to answer all these questions all the time because people don't know what it is. Understandably, I just think it'd be cool for like someone who's never, doesn't understand what really, maybe someone who's never played poker, doesn't understand what it means to be able to pick up this book and say, okay, well, I don't, you know, I didn't learn anything about what range to play in the cutoff, but uh, I learned about, you know, what the poker lifestyle is like. I guess it's like, you know, the movie Rounders, I think actually does a pretty good job of encapsulating the live poker lifestyle to an extent. Um, It's a little bit romanticized in some ways, but, you know, I think actually pretty accurate to the lifestyle, but I, but I want to capture the modern day uh, or the last, you know, this big sort of poker uh, era starting in 2003 up till now uh, what it's like for someone playing and it's with a focus on live poker for sure, but mm-hmm. what, what the whole lifestyle is like living out of a, a suitcase sometimes and the ups and the downs and how backing works and, you know, how you can lose money in dumb ways and the highs and the lows. Yeah. Just all of that. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. Definitely something that would be, I'll be good for people to have because once again, you, you know, when I ask you what's your best advice for somebody who's asking uh, for for your opinion getting into poker, it's like, don't do it. At the same time, you want to bring in out this book. I guess it's like a filter upon filter of a certain type of person who's really like this game is for them. They're going to go through all the doors anyway. Yeah. Hmm. But like, yeah, in terms of the book, I definitely want it to appeal to as broad of an audience as possible. So right. I guess avoiding the technical stuff or, oh, or definitely, definitely. lost Good. over it maybe. But because there might be times where I want to talk about hand, but I'll just dumb it down and talk more about like the, the people in the hand and like why I'm making the decisions I'm making than about anything like the actual mechanics of the game, I guess. Mm-hmm. Are there any books that you look back to and, and think like they sort of influenced your poker trajectory in any way or uh, the, comes to mind? The best book I read on poker, my favorite book, was Gus Hansen's Every Hand Revealed. Did you uh, ever read that? Yeah, I read that. And I, I remember I read that and the very next day after finishing the last chapter, I won some uh, tournament which was 
big enough for me at that time online. And I thought, oh, Gus Hansen is so, so smart. Little did I know, right? But yeah. it's still a fun book. It was really, it's really still fun. A fun book. And like, look, it's not, it's not like some high level book in terms of the theory itself. But honestly, like, I think he, he does have like something that some of these other people don't have where he, I think he is fairly like intuitive, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like almost like the style I started with, I guess. Um, yeah. In terms of the way he adjusts the way he plays based on like who he's playing with. And, and, and the book is, it, it's not, yeah, it's not like something like the theory of poker or like one of those like super technical books, but yeah. very, very interesting read. And I just love the format of it. I loved how he just recorded every hand. Yeah. Yeah. I remember feeling the same way about that book. I was really blown away by it. And especially like when the very next day I actually win a tournament for like 3K yeah. or whatever. Felt like that was before I even started playing professional. I think I was just still having fun with poker, and I thought like, "Oh wow, this is amazing." Um, but you know, with these things, like, what is the best advice that you can get? It's the advice that you're ready for, right? Somebody might be spilling like the biggest GTO theory gems on you, and you're just like, "It's." You know, it's coming one way and coming through the other way. You just can't absorb the information. Sometimes you just need a different way to look at the game. All you need. And that book definitely gave gave that to me. Just this aggressive, weird, uh, exploitative style that he had. And just the way he thinks through the hands. It was just like peeking yeah. into a good player's... And no doubt he was a good player for his time uh, in that tournament. Did did all right. So it was yeah. useful, useful for me, for sure. Definitely. And there were also some videos. I remember, remember the site Deuces Cracked? Yeah. So I watched a video by Krantz mm-hmm. um, on Heads Up No Limit. And the very next day I won, I had like one of my biggest ever wins online in terms of number of buy-ins. I won something like 65 buy-ins playing 50 cent a dollar heads up. Or it might've been- Buy-ins in a one no, it was, day? It wasn't quite that much, but I think it was like, okay, it was Mm $6,500 and it was 50 cent a dollar and one, two. So I think it was maybe like, like 45 or 50 buy-ins total. It was a Mm -hmm. lot. It was crazy. Um, and I, I just felt like obviously he ran like God, but I felt like something in his video had really just resonated with me. And it was like one of those aha moments and I had like changed the way I was seeing heads up no limit. And of course it would be fun to go back and look at that video now. I don't know how well his concepts held up at the time. And, it's just funny to think about the way I used to to play uh, heads up no. I'd love to just see like footage of how I used to play heads up no limit, but I yeah. mean, obviously the games evolved a lot. But yeah, that's the thing. You know, I talked with a lot of people from you know our era. Let's call it that way. The people who started playing poker around the same time as we did, and there's a lot of good experiences and bad experiences in terms of like you start exchanging information with other players and sometimes it's for for the better because you actually they they put your thoughts in the right direction and there's some sort of synergy and sometimes it's for the worse because you, you sort of sink down in the swamp of of the bad ideas because nobody knew what are good ideas what were bad ideas everything was just like trial and error and uh, no real math behind it and just a lot of field play and a lot of observation like selection bias oh i i kept winning with this strategy so it must be right so there's a bit of that as well just uh, a sort of variance in terms of how good the information is yeah 
No, definitely true. Yeah. But it's still valid to this day. Like sometimes the most important thing that you can get is just a peek into somebody else's mind like how they think about the game and that's all you need because that might be that missing piece because even we we talked with um, vladimir kramnik uh, the world chess champion on the podcast and i asked him did he have that moment when he was already at the very high level when he just heard one thing which sort of changed the trajectory of his of his chess career and and he said that yeah absolutely there was more than one and one he remembers specifically like he was listening to a lecture from uh, another very high, really good player. He was just giving a lecture, like a master class, and he didn't even prepare for for the lecture. It was just like sort of something that he did because somebody asked him to do it. Yeah. And for Kramnik, there was like this little gem. I don't know what exactly because we didn't go into details, but uh, there was something that sort of made him change the understanding of the game in, in some big time. And it's it's incredible how you know sometimes. Things like this just show up in unexpected places because you're just yeah. in the right mindset to to receive that information. Yeah, you just get this like little, and you just never know when it's going to be or what it's going to be. And it's just this like one little moment, whether it's a, just an interaction with somebody or something you see or watch or read, yeah. and it can like flip a switch in your brain and help a lot for sure. Yeah. Oh well, Alex, it was such a such a pleasure to talk to you because I I really really got back into the scene of like oh live poker and how beautiful it is and uh, it's, yeah, uh, and I had the flashbacks to some of those games we were playing like it, it's like sometimes you kind of forget about the the, the different eras of live poker and stuff. But like, yeah, I definitely miss those those high stakes uh, win Bellagio Aria games. Yeah, we'll get back to them at some point. And even the mid stakes, you know, and the and the low yeah. stakes, because you know we've been through that grind as well. It's not, yeah. you know, it's and not I still all. Play, I still play a lot of five, 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 ten, just because I love right. it. I love it. Right. Well, I I don't because I don't need to, and I don't have access to them. Like I would never travel for like a five ten game uh, right. because it's just doesn't financially doesn't make sense for me to to go yeah. all the way there. But. uh so I don't play them. I don't know if I would if I had like easy access to it. I probably might go just like every other weekend just just yeah. to have fun because it is so much yeah. fun eventually. They are fun. A lot of the time those games are well, they're less stress and a lot of the time they're they're more fun. And like, yeah, your hourly is not gonna be as high, but you can still make decent money in like a five mm-hmm. five ten with a two K buy and like type of game. You can still you can still have like a ten K win or something. Yeah. And eventually, you know, if if the lineup is good, it's also there's just way more than just the money. You're having all the fun that yeah, some people exactly. are actually just paying to have that fun, right? They're they're happy to lose in the game just to play that game, and and you happen to win in the game and have all the fun. Seems like a really good deal. Other thing that sometimes happens is those games. If you have the right people, they can get kicked up too. Yeah, yeah, true. Oh, anyway, well, let's see what happens to the world. And um, speaking of all the COVID and the struggles that people are are having, because obviously we're just uh, really privileged to to be in a position where we don't really have to worry about, uh, you know, paycheck paycheck to paycheck and all the businesses being closed and whatnot. But I saw you do a really nice move recently on Twitter announcing uh, to help out the families in Nova Scotia uh, around Christmas time. I thought that was that was a really nice move, and how was the response there? 
really good. Um, I had a lot of people donate money towards the cause and then I put that money into use, whether it was like a lot of it, I just ended up giving cash donations. And then in right. some cases I ended up coordinating with like a couple of toy stores and getting actual gifts to certain yeah. people as well. And, yeah. And I probably should clarify for those of for those listeners who don't know that you announced on Twitter that you're going to help out um, families who need help to buy presents for their kids for Christmas. Right. That was, that was basically it. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, I, I read it and I thought like, Oh man, this is, this is beautiful and uh, really good initiative. That was really yeah. nice. I think I helped like uh, just under 300 families. So it was definitely, it was, it yeah. was great. Great response. Yeah. Cause you know, these moments are something you can look back to and, uh, and think like, you know what? I, it mattered to some people. It actually made a difference to a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's beautiful. Cause oftentimes, you know, playing poker, it's hard to point out any moments um, in your career where you can say like, Oh, it mattered to, more people than just me because for the most part it's just you know just for your own good you're playing for yourself you're just making money for yourself you're not really producing anything right, right? apart from occasional entertainment at the table but that's you know how, how much is that really worth but you know to to be able to then use your freedom and your and your money in such a way it's just i i really applaud you for that yeah no, it was, it was definitely uh, rewarding. Like, like you said, like poker sometimes feels very selfish. So it's good to give back in some other way. Yeah. Anyway, Alex, such a pleasure. Thanks for yeah, it was fun making the time. Yeah, good to chat with you again. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the description, and of course, I'd highly appreciate if you subscribe, click like, spread the word about the podcast. Also, if you'd like to receive a regular newsletter with my key takeaways about each episode, go ahead and subscribe to it on runchexpodcast.com. That's R-U-N-C-H-U-K-S podcast.com. I write those myself. I take it seriously and I really enjoy the interaction with the readers. So I hope you'll sign up uh, and I'll be back for you next time. Thank you.